The glory which thou hast given me I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them even as thou hast loved me. From the Gospel according to St. John, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. This morning I turn to the question of Christian unity or the unity of the church. It is a question with which every Christian must struggle, and I will say from the outset that I have struggled with it at times in my life, with Jesus' prayer that his church would be perfectly one, according to the level of unity with which he himself has enjoyed eternally with the Father, and that should leave us all deeply humbled and desirous of this great gift. But first, we should take care of some initial business. The first thing to say on a morning like this is that the church's unity is the first of the so-called four marks of the church. The church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. The church's unity is not shown forth in a shared jurisdiction or administration, but by her unity with her Lord. The four marks, these four, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic, function not separately, but together as marks of the whole church. And we can actually see this in the prayer of Jesus in today's gospel reading. Well, note this. He begins by praying, I do not pray for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. He prays for those who will ultimately believe in the message of the apostles, who will believe the authenticity of apostolic proclamation. We see first that the basis of the church's unity is on the unchanging, indeed unchangeable, witness of the apostles. Paul writes to the Ephesians that the household of God is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple of, in the Lord. I couldn't help but think as we read that reading from the Acts of the Apostles this morning, and the foundation of the jail uh, shakes, asking why is it shaking? Well, because it's shaky. The testimony of the apostles is making it shaky. That's kind of fun, isn't it? Paul writes also to Timothy that the church is the pillar and bulwark of the truth. By bulwark and pillar, Paul is using architectural terms that relate to how a building is supported, how it grows strong, how it remains stable. The church must remain continually concerned with the truth of the gospel and the apostolic message, especially as it is contained in Scripture. We inhabit a time in which individual churches are abandoning apostolic Christianity for the sake of cultural relevance, using the most perverse and twisted interpretations of biblical text to do so, and that is a true scandal. I mean, any time that I have to... Uh, talk to my daughter about biblical texts that are being trotted out on Instagram and make clear, you know, that's a really messy uh, uh, take on that text, Moira. You know, I had to, I had to really be, kind of sternly reject the interpretation that one particular person was putting on it. But that is our charge. That is our job these days. First, these twistings of the apostolic truth are a betrayal of the church's identity as the pillar and bulwark of the truth. They're a betrayal of the church's apostolic witness. And second, they deeply forfeit a witness which the world desperately needs. When apostolic Christianity is jettisoned, it not only damages the church's witness, it actually hurts people, actual people. 
who as opposed to believing the truth, believe in lies and fabrications. When Christian preaching is oriented towards itching ears and away from sound teaching, God's people wander, as Paul says, wander into myths. The church's oneness of witness rests first upon Jesus Christ himself, proclaimed exactly as the apostles proclaimed him. This is the very basis of our creedal affirmations, that faith, that faith which was given to the apostles. I love what our catechism says about this. Authentic Christianity is apostolic Christianity. Apostolic Christianity rests on the historic eyewitness testimony of Jesus' followers, the apostles, to the fact of his life, death, resurrection, present heavenly reign, and promised future return. Because of this apostolic testimony, we can trust that the Holy Scriptures testify accurately to the truth and to this faith. And furthermore, that we, so many centuries later, have received it accurately. We are those who have believed through the proclamation of the apostolic word. We are those very people for whom the Lord prays. I mean, that was one of the things that kind of struck me out of the blue yesterday as we elected a bishop, was that this is about the continuation of apostolic ministry and the continuation of apostolic preaching. This is an important deal. It can't be taken lightly. I will say also that the church founded upon this apostolic witness is properly called Catholic. And Catholic simply means according to the whole. It means that genuine Christianity will always be concerned with the consensus of Christians throughout time and place, concerned with what the saints and martyrs have proclaimed with universal agreement. Catholicism matters um, in the way, because it relates to the way in which the church thrives and survives following the time of the apostles. How can it continue to be apostolic after the apostles die? Well, the answer lies in the unity of her witness, which transcends national identities and even uh, the identities of every particular era. To be a Catholic Christian is to live in submission to the whole, in, hu in humble submission to the whole. And for us, that means avoiding the pitfalls of the pervasive and relentless idea that we, 21st century Americans, have got it all figured out. This is not only the chronological snobbery spoken of by C.S. Lewis, it is sinful pride. And left unchecked, it will utterly corrupt not only the soul, but the churches under its spell. Well, take, for instance, so-called same-sex marriage. This practice cannot by, by any standard be called apostolic, nor can it be called Catholic. It is a scandal to the unity of the church. It undermines the unity of the church. But should it surprise us or surprise anyone that other innovations to the faith are not far behind? Should it surprise anyone that in short order, creedal orthodoxy when it comes to Christology, for instance, also comes under attack? This shouldn't surprise anybody. It's simply the truth of things. Next, in this passage, Jesus prays that the church would be one, but in another sense, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So that the apostles don't think that their unity comes because they all happen to agree or because they all share the same administration. Jesus takes it up a whole other notch. The essential unity of the church is grounded upon the doctrine of the Trinity. In particular, circumcision, the person of the Son being in the Father and the Son being in the Father. 
The Son receives his, etern his eternal identity from the Father. In like manner, the church receives her identity from the Son precisely because she is in Him, in Christ, and not just as an idea, but through a sacramental bond spoken of in three ways in Holy Scripture. The first way, and this is important, I think, that this is spoken of in the New Testament is the New Testament's account of baptism. For by one Spirit, Paul writes to the Corinthians, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The apostolic witness regarding baptism is that this is the way in which we are put into Christ. Paul writes, for as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptism joins the Christian to Jesus Christ first by the importation of the Holy Spirit, second by bodily identification with him in his death and resurrection, Third, by imparting the forgiveness of sins wrought by Jesus on the cross. And fourthly, by incorporating the human person into Christ's living body, the church. This means that the Christian made a member of the church enjoys the status of being in Christ and therefore lives the life of the divine trinity. And therefore the unity of the church is baptismal. It's not you have a faith. Father Canary has a faith, I have a faith, can't we all just get along? It's no, we all live the same life of the same household lived in the life of the divine trinity. Next, the Christian is made a participatory member of Christ's body and blood in the Eucharist. Paul writes, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Consequently, the essential unity of the church is Eucharistic. At times and in various places, this Eucharistic unity has been endangered by broken or impaired communion among churches. But for now, we can simply say that fellowship with the Lord's body and blood expresses and brings to fulfillment the unity of the church. And it must be said today that every Christian should pray for the full restoration of full Eucharistic communion to the church. The fact that this is broken is a serious scandal, and it needs to be amended. But no one person can bring this about. It must be the work of the Holy Spirit. Lastly, the sacramental bond between Christ and his church is spoken of in nuptial terms. The relationship between Christ and his church being imaged forth in the sacrament of marriage. This is but one reason that we should be deeply concerned when the church's teaching on marriage is called into question and challenged. It's not only a scandal of the unity of the church, it says we can show forth the unity of the church in other ways, other creative ways. In Scripture, marriage is a prime image. It is the prime image, in a sense, for how we ought to see the eternal union between Christ and his church. And it's a real shame today that the image most people have of the church is something like a steeple. I remember if you used to go do clip art searches, remember this in the old days, you used to do and you'd search church, and what would you see? Steeple, 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 steeple. What it really should be, or could be, is that of a woman loved by a self-sacrificing husband and that of a husband loved by his bride. And to that end, Jesus lovingly prays for his bride, the church, this, the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. 
I in them and thou in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them even as thou hast loved me. The glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them. What is that glory which Jesus has given? Is it not the glory of eternal life with the Father? This is a gift first given by the Father to the Son and in reciprocal manner given back by the Son, back to the Father, and simultaneously given to us. We learn through this phrase that they may become perfectly one, that for a time the unity of the body of Christ will be imperfect. I think we can all say, is it imperfect now? Obviously so, and that's not a question. It's imperfect. But this phrase, thanks be to God, is in, the subjective t- is in the subjunctive tense. It means that this unity has not yet been perfected. But when it is, it will be. Not because of human striving, but by the outpouring of the glory of the Father upon the Son, which is in turn outpoured upon his holy bride. Might I say that when the glory of eternal life is poured out on the church, both in the grace given to us and in those outside the church coming to believe and be joined to her, the result is that the church not only receives glory, but gives glory. Not merely giving glory to God, but giving glory to this world. I mean, think about the reading today from the Acts of the Apostles. The Philippian jailer is about to kill himself. In an amazing, stunning turn of events, what happens? He receives the gospel. He and his whole family are baptized. He washes the terrible wounds of the apostles. He feeds them a meal and he's baptized. All before sunrise. An amazing story. This family, this household has received glory by being incorporated into the household of God. And this very much needs to be said, that the unity of the church is increased when Christians join together in glorifying the God who has saved us and when we join together in bringing glory to this world through works of evangelism and mission. It brings rejoicing to this world, rejoicing at eternal life. Another way of saying this is this, when the glory of eternal life is poured out upon the church, our unity is further perfected with the end being that the world comes to know, first, that the Father has sent the Son and has done so out of his great love for us, which is fully in accord with the love he has for the Son. That is to say that the unity of the church speaks to the gospel. Finally, let me say that the perfect unity of the church is something that no matter how close we get to it, it will be something which is merely asymptotic until we all enjoy the glory of the beatific vision. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, whom thou hast given me, may be with me where I am, to behold my glory which thou hast given me in thy love for me before the foundation of the world. Even if, as some believe, will happen Uh, into the future, all churches come together in a great act of uh, ecumenical unity, our unity will still be imperfect, according to Jesus himself. Because Jesus says that for his church to be one means that they will behold his glory, to see him as he is, and to be with him. And to that end, we pray, Lord Jesus, quickly come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.